Welcome to Arash's World. Today we have a very special guest. We have David Sharp, who's going to be with us, and he is uh, another recipient of the Sigourney Award, uh, our, our third one here in our series. Uh, welcome to Arash's World. Thank you, Arash. Glad to be here. Now, David, if you can start um, presenting yourself a little bit, introducing yourself, how would you describe yourself here very briefly in a few words? What would you say? Well, I'm a psychoanalyst uh, and family and couple therapist as well. Um, I've been doing this for a lot of years now. Uh, and uh, my wife, Jill, Jill Savage Sharf, and I just received the Sigourney Award, which we feel very honored about. We got it for promoting not just the use of distance analysis and distance education, although I think that's what they really focused in on, but we really have developed a whole kind of a matrix, a learning matrix, which started out with the Institute that we founded 25 years ago, um, that is built on educational lines that really use analytic principles to organize the educational process, especially those from object relations, uh, psychoanalytic theory, which means that processes are reciprocal, that is, they're, they're basically relational in the general sense of the relational term. Um, and that, for instance, um, the teaching we do is best if we are also expecting to learn. Uh, so our, our institute is a teaching and learning community, for instance. And that became really a worldwide community as we use the distance technology to expand be, beyond the shores of the United States to Central America first, uh, and then to Europe and most recently, Russia and China. Now, uh, this is innovative. This is remote treatment is something that we've seen over the past few years, but you've done this way ahead of time. So you've thought really ahead. And, uh, and so, yeah, how did you come up with this idea? What was the uh, impetus to um, taking on technology to, to, do, to do teaching? And um, The impetus was that we, we recognized very early on um, 35, 40 years ago, that uh, psychoanalytic training particularly, but psychotherapy training of, of a serious nature was limited to big cities uh, and that people really couldn't get it unless they were prepared to relocate. Um, and so starting in about 1989, uh, when I was the director of a place called the Washington School of Psychiatry, which was a psychotherapy training center in Washington, D.C., um, we organized programs for people to travel into. Uh, and uh, we had a first class with, I think, about 45 students who came from all over the country and Canada uh, and overseas, uh, especially Central America at that point, uh, Panama particularly. And um, that was successful as a distance learning program, but people had to travel. Uh, so they would come into us for two weeks in the summer and then four long weekends. Um, and that worked, um, but uh, we recognized that we, we really needed to do more. And as soon as uh, distance technology became a possibility, um, we decided, and this was actually Jill's idea, she said, really, you can have centers in other cities that are kind of satellite centers for a training program where people sort of draw the strength of the program from the center in Washington, because that's where we are. Um, but that this begins to spread. Um, so when I, I left, we were both teaching for Washington School. We left there in 1994 and um, with the help of colleagues who'd been working with us set up, uh, I think four centers originally, one of which was in Panama uh, uh, in Central America. Uh, and then we realized that there was this new technology. Uh, now, it worked initially via the intranet, which was a parallel to the internet, specifically for business, for, for professional use. Um, that is no longer necessary, but it was in the beginning. And we joined, we joined uh, London, our, our colleagues in London, especially at the Tavistock Center in the Tavistock Clinic, where both of us had trained. Um, and uh, our group in our satellite in Salt Lake City and Long Island with Washington. So we, that was what the technology would support without being enormously expensive. It was just expensive, not enormous. And so we began using what now is the precursor to what you and I are doing at the moment of talking by Zoom. Um, 
and we did that. And as the technology improved, we could include more, more centers uh, in this. So it went to six. And then all of a sudden, then uh, we had this new technology that meant you could be connected to really virtually an infinite number of other places. Um, so we were early adapters. We've been doing it for more than 20 years. Um, uh, in the you know in the last days of the 20th century, we were already we were already doing this. Um, one of my board members said to me, "You know, there's there really is a significant advantage in being the second person to do something." Uh, but but actually, we were the first. Uh, and it's, it's amazing. I, I have huge respect for pioneers, but it was kind of interesting because I was I was reading an article from from 2000, actually, a newspaper article that talked about the Internet and said the Internet is a fad. It won't last. It's people will not like it. And I'm just thinking how wrong they were. And I always appreciate people who look ahead and come up with with these ideas and they don't just go with the flow of people. And one thing I must say that there must have been a lot of resistance, not even, not only back then, but even now there is, there has been resistance until recently, until COVID. Oh, oh I think there still will be resistance. And, and I was one of those who would resist myself. I'm an instructor. And when we were told to teach languages uh, uh, with technology over the internet, I said, no, I will not accept it, but I had to, I was forced into it. And now I wouldn't want anything else. I think it has huge potential and I'm a convert now. I've been converted to, to technology, but that's why I appreciate so much more that people like you and your wife have looked ahead and have gone with this, even though it wasn't cool back then, even though it wasn't popular. Well, well, the teaching was all right. Nobody minded the teaching. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, we discovered that we could do most of what we could do in person. We, we still like being in person with our students, mm -hmm. and our faculty. We really miss, especially the social connectedness that comes with being able to have a cup of coffee or a drink or whatever together. We really miss that. And our students miss that. But the learning the, the learning part of it can go on very well using these new technologies and Zoom and so on. Zoom turns out to be the best one at this point, but there were others, um, WebEx and DoxyMe and so on. They're all, they're all make it possible. Um, the resistance was not to teaching remotely. It was to treating remotely. Uh, and especially the IPA, which is a very... A conservative organization, basically. I mean, not that everybody in it is conservative, but as an organization, it drags its feet and is rather elitist. Um, it does so in the service of saying the standards have to be maintained, of course, but, and we believe in the standards very, very much. Um, they were against it until the day when the pandemic hit. <laughs> then, um, then they were right out of the box promoting how to do distance treatment best. And they've been very good about that. Um, but they are expecting to go back to all in-person treatment, at least for their trainees. And you know, that isn't going to happen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't think so. <laughs> we've done surveys. So I'm part of a committee for American Psychoanalytic. And we've used that to do, to do a survey of what clinicians think, analytically oriented clinicians, analysts and, and uh, analytic therapists. And 80% um, of them were doing hardly any distance treatment before the pandemic. So only about 20% were doing any significant number of hours per week um, using distance technology. Um, well, now essentially nobody thinks they're going back to all in-person treatment. Mm -hmm. They also think, and we, we, have, we have not surveyed the patients because of course we don't want access to the patients whose names are confidential and so on. But the, but the clinicians say that their patients are telling them they don't want to go back to all in-person treatment. Most of them like being in person, um, but there are all these problems of how long the commutes are, especially in big cities. Uh, so New York City, Los Angeles, but even worse in Mexico City or Tokyo or Shanghai and, and Beijing, where I know lots of people. Um, the commutes are a couple of hours often. Well, now people can get treatment and they can do it more intensively because they don't have to use all that time, all that dead time. Uh, so it's, it's, it's here to stay. Uh, and and I, 
this is also with a lot of physicians too. And you have like family doctors who were against it and now they've been doing it. They don't want to go back to the old and uh, they want to continue to, at least in a hybrid way. And that's yeah. been, again, my experience too, both and on the teaching side, as well as my students. A lot of them really like it and quite a few actually prefer it. And I was surprised to see that the results were generally actually better in terms of languages. The pronunciation was better. And I guess it helps to have those headphones and to listen more carefully. So and the potential too of what you can do uh, with it by adding things, by by getting them to do stuff and then talking about it online. And again, the, the lack of distraction. And there seems to be like more distraction in the classroom in person as, as an instructor for me than when it's done remotely. Of course, uh, there, but there's this prejudice against working from home. And I think that's something that we need to deal with where people think that if you are working from home, you're not doing anything. You have to be in the office to be considered working. And I think that is uh, something that uh, we have to move over that's that needs to move over we we passed it we're in a new age now and we have to adapt to the times that's the old way of thinking well this is okay so this is a whole other area about mm -hmm. uh, your raising which doesn't apply to psychoanalysts and psychotherapists so much in that we've been alone in our offices with one or a, or a few patients a group a, a treatment group or a couple or family but so that's not so relevant to us i know it's a whole other area of how much will people want to be in an office together and how much do they want to not, ha not have to face their commute or, uh, or whatever that uh, the world is going to have to work out and it's probably not going to be good for uh, commercial real estate uh, brokers. But, uh, but I understand even there, there are segments of that community that have done very well. Self-storage is, is a real estate area that's done very, very well. <laughs> For instance, but uh, but the other thing, the other thing I think, just to go beyond the use of technology, uh, is that I, I think it's true that it enables us to be in touch with our students in a more efficient way. That is one of the silver linings. Uh, they don't have to spend a lot of time commuting. This loss of personal contact in the room together, though, is a big. That's a big issue. Now, one place that's come into play is for those of us who are training people in other countries uh, uh, where the word hybrid is a problem, not, not for the reasons you're, you were mentioning, that is some in person and some, uh, some in the room together, we all like that, um, but where some students are at a distance and others are in the room, that turns out to be not so good. <laughs> uh, probably not good for either group, uh, but then we face the problem of, all right, how do we train the students from China or Russia? Uh, uh, because we want them on an equal footing. They want the training. Uh, there's more and more training available in China, uh, but it's not up to the standard of the West and won't be for some significant amount of time. And they're very good students and they're very devoted. Uh, how are we going to put them on on an equal footing. Well, we're wrestling with that. Uh, and and uh, that still has to be worked out. It's also the, the reach of thinking, like we are a global community and technology has shown that because we're connected in ways we've never been connected before. And that is truly amazing that I can use, I can have interviews with people with across, across the world. To me, I still cannot fully understand it, fathom it. It's, it's so impressive that people in different areas are talking at the same time and they can have a conversation and they can teach each other. I think we, we, we often don't, don't value the things we have enough and the potential it has. Of course, it can go in, in, in wrong directions and even things like social media and uh, as, a, as a psychologist, as a psychoanalyst, analyst, you know that that is an issue, but at the same time, it has its benefits as well in terms of connecting with others instead of in, in terms of sharing what you're going through and the difficulties or even looking for help uh, using that, that platform and so on. So it's it, you get the both sides. And I, I like to focus, and that's just my outlook in general, on the positive side and not to, to be technology for its shortcomings. Yeah, I agree. I agree with you. So um, I run... I've been giving a, a training program in China since 2010. 
had been going before that, but, um, and we would go twice a year for six days each to Beijing. And then the students would come in from all across China and they liked it and I, and I loved going. Uh, but of course we haven't been able to do it in the last two years. Uh, and we're not sure when we can, again, it's not just COVID, it's also, you know, our governments aren't getting along so well. Um, uh, so it's not so good. Uh, our people to people, we continue to get along really well. Um, I love our Chinese colleagues and, and they really, they want what we have to teach, but they also like it that we want to learn about them. Uh, so I, my, my most recent book is um, uh, Marriage and Family in Modern China. It's a psychoanalytic take on the Chinese family, uh, which is in very rapid evolution. Marriages are and the families are. From the point of view, you know, not just many years of trauma to all Chinese people, but also the one child policy that, so they went from very large families to very small families. Uh, and now the government wants them to have more children, but mostly they don't want to do that. Uh, turns out children are expensive everywhere. And, uh, and they, they know that. And, and in all modern countries, the families are small now uh, because, because people have careers that they want to invest in because children are expensive they, and so on. Um, well, I want to learn about these things. I learn about them better by being there uh, because we can have these kind of private, intimate conversations that you just tend not to have on Zoom. But for actually teaching the classes, I can be there more frequently. We have more continuity of training than when I was just going a couple of times a year. Um, most people didn't like those long airplane rides, uh, 13 and a half hours. I happen to like them. I get a lot of work done, uh, but, uh, but it, there is something nice about not having to get on the airplane quite so frequently. Uh, yeah, for me, the, the airplane, I like the flight. I like just getting there and making sure everything is fine. That additional stress, I don't like and customs and all that. That's a little but, but we skip, like we, there's so much time we save just because not commuting, not going to this place and so on, definitely a, a benefit here. I'd like to switch and focus more on psychoanalysis, which is something that I've been very passionate about, especially over the past uh, three, four years in my life when I've truly discovered it. Um, I've always known about it. I had read about it. I had studied it. But when you realize that um, what it can do, the tremendous impact it has on our health, on our mental health, on our overall health, physical health as well, it's astounding. And in many ways, I like to think, I would say it saved my life in, in, in many ways. Sure. sure. And, just, uh, yeah, go ahead. And it's just like opened my eyes and it liberated me in, 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 in astounding ways. And it's mostly with the unconscious because it's something that um, it was frowned upon for many years and people said, no, that doesn't exist or Freud is wrong and this. And um, with now more and more research, with uh, um, learning more about brain science, neuroscience, and um, people are coming to in, in the right direction. They're, they're, they're joining uh, psychoanalysis in many ways. At least they're taking parts of it and incorporating it into, into their own way of, of doing things. And I think that's, that's a good thing. Um, but for me, it was when uh, I talked to uh, somebody I respected and I said, talked about the unconscious and he's a, he's a psychologist and um, who teaches with me. And he said, yes, it's true. And just kind of that confirmation, that affirmation too, that, there is something to it. This is real and we can deal with it and we can actually, it can really help us in ways we had not thought before was very, very liberating. Well, good. I'm, I'm glad you're, uh, you're not a convert. You've been a lifelong advocate for it and you just know more about it over time. Um, I, I think it's the, it's the most sophisticated of the psychotherapies um, uh, that uh, Freud really discovered something that has, that endures. Even those therapies that say they're better than analysis really have drawn a core from analysis, for instance, cognitive therapies. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> what they've done is take the cognitive piece because a lot of what Freud discovered was the capacity to think about these things in a cognitive way. That's certainly part of it. Um, what I, my main criticism of the cognitive therapies is they, they take part of it and they leave out 
what I think is the richest part, which you've just been talking about, which is the unconscious organization of mental life and of our interactions with people, um, which are really important. And I think that um, Freud, of course, was wrong about some things. Of course he was. <clears throat> it was. He was a 19th century man, and he took everything he could from 19th century science and applied it. And we've fortunately gone beyond that, but the core of what he discovered is still there. Uh, and, exactly. Uh, I, I think it's, it's, it's really harsh to criticize, criticize somebody for, from a different generation, from a different time frame. And it's like, and of course, nobody is perfect and nobody can get everything right. But what he found, when, I, when we look at that, it's immense. It's as, as, as big as Darwin or even bigger, in, in my view, because it's, well, it's, it's I mean, it, it, these a are huge discovery. But I think they, they actually are of a piece, I mean, in, in the sense mm -hmm. of really applying the scientific mind to these major questions of biology, actually. And we, of course, are biological creatures. So why would you think science is so uh, hesitant? Because uh, the term analysis involves thinking, it involves analyzing and all that. Why is there this, this barrier? This, uh, well, there, uh, there's a history to this. I think one part of the history is that analysts as a group during the 20th century were so anti-scientific themselves. They said, no, we can't prove this. It's intuitive and you just have to take our word for it. That is really a very short-sighted stance uh, because there is, there's plenty of science to support what we're doing as an analysts and analytic therapists. Um, that's been very well documented now. For instance, the discovery of mirror neurons in neuroscience, uh, which I can see you know about. Um, uh, now, we had been using, in object relations theory, we used the central concepts of projective identification and introjective identification, which many Freudians, that is the classical American group, said that's nonsense and it's magic to think that you can put part of yourself into somebody else's mind. That's magic. Well, it turns out it's biology, uh, that our minds are built, of course they're built, to read other people's minds. That's what we do. Uh, we read other people's emotions 10 times faster than we read, than we understand their cognitive messages, their verbal messages. We're much better as a race uh, uh, at reading what people are thinking because we read their face, we read their eyes, we read their tone of voice, we read their body posture, and we do it all unconsciously. Uh, you have to, because you've got to know if somebody really doesn't like you, for instance, um, and you've got to have a pretty good capacity for predicting that based on the way they are saying things and the way they send messages and so on. Well, that's complete scientific support for projective identification. That is that we can take parts of our inner world and get it across, across the ether into the mind of the other person. That's how mothers and babies communicate and it's how spouses and families communicate. Um, well, Freud didn't know that. Uh, he knew people were communicating. He had the, the, uh, the metaphor of that the, the analyst should tune him, himself, men, of course, should tune himself to the other person like a, a radio antenna. Well, that's a very good metaphor for it. Of course it is. Um, but he didn't know what the science could possibly be because neuroscience wasn't there. Now it is. And so we've got many more kinds of things that work that Mark Soames and others have done in neuropsychoanalysis is wonderful support. And now, fortunately, people are really doing outcome studies that support the idea that uh, analytic therapies are at least as good as the other therapies. They're at least as good as drugs. They're actually better, uh, especially in the way that what somebody gets from an analytic therapy, and I don't mean just four, time, four or five times a week, but an analytic therapy is they keep growing even after they've stopped going to therapy. And that that one parameter is so much stronger than the other therapies uh, that it just, it really uh, outranks them by a lot. We are trying to teach people to grow. I, I have a personal example for that because I've been suffering from high blood pressure and um, and my uh, my family physician was kind of 
trying to nudge me towards uh, taking drugs. And I'm, I'm, in this case, I'm, I'm against drugs because I think there's a reason for me having high blood pressure and I need to find that reason and deal with it because just taking medication is like, okay, the symptom is gone, but my issue is still there. So the high blood pressure will always exist and I'm dependent on this medication. So I said, I'm going to do it my way. And that's when psychoanalysis really helped me. And so talking about projections, that, that was my issue because I was projecting things onto people that came from my childhood. And I used to think that my bosses were my parents and I would be intimidated by them and so on. So once, once this came into the clear for me and I realized what the issue was, I was able to deal with my stress, my fear. And um, last time I went to, to get my uh, blood pressure checked, my family physician was amazed. She said, how did you do it? And um, um, psychoanalysis. <laughs> Good for you. I also take the medication for blood pressure, um, but I'm a little older than you are, and my body is <laughs> getting on with things. Um, I, but I, but I think in every other way, I, I agree with you that uh, that we really we have these capacities. The brain is definitely controlled by emotion, and so much of it is malleable uh, to these to these uh, ways. And it's not all what we cognitively understand, because analysis is not as I said, not just a cognitive process. Um, I think it really has to do with maturing the emotional capacity of, of the person. The other thing I, I wanted to say, Arash, is mm -hmm. I, I really like doing analysis and I do more of that clinically than I do of anything else. I, I told you I do family and couple work. I see children. Um, and um, I, I think the main thing about doing formal, very intensive analysis is that it really is where our ideas come from uh, in this field. And that it really has always been the place that seeds the rest of analytic therapy. So for my, in terms of my efforts, I felt it was more important to, to really train the largest possible number of well-trained analytic psychotherapists, most of whom see people once or twice a week um, or they see them in groups, or they see them in, in families uh, and as a couple and so on. Um, but the, the depth of the ideas comes from those, those of us who also do formal analysis. Um, and I think that is, among other things, our laboratory. It is good treatment. I think it's the best treatment for many people, not for everybody, but for many people. Uh, and and it really is where we can test out these ideas in the depth of unconscious understanding. Uh, but at the same time, if we don't do research, um, we will have had it. <laughs> Absolutely. What, what do you think is the main problem with families? I mean, we, and there, to me, like when dysfunctional families seems to be the norm. Like when I compare myself, my, my wife's family, and then people I talk to, instead of being truly honest, is there's a lot of trauma going on within families. So um, how, can we, um, how can we manage a way that it doesn't happen, that we can have a, a family that is supportive, that is united? And what, what would be the, the issue here, the main issue, why we have um, so many dysfunctional families? In your research and your experience, of course, of course, you're asking a very complex question. <laughs> uh, there are many. Look, there are really a, a lot of healthy families yeah. out there, and they do things in lots of different ways. Uh, what we think is that a family that can provide a secure base, in in John Bowlby's language, uh, the developer of attachment theory, which I think is a very important. A set of theories which came from analysis but was researched um, and is still researched, um, that those families, those parents, often couples, not always couples, who can provide security to their children, uh, who can give their children the freedom to grow while at the same time giving a, a very secure base, those are the families that can overcome various traumatic incidents that happen to the children or to the adults. Um, and they, they really exist. We don't see so many of them clinically. We only see them clinically if the kind of challenge comes to them that anybody couldn't manage alone. Uh, you know, severe illness of a child, for instance, or a death of a child. So then we'd see them, um, but uh, otherwise we see the ones who've had real challenges to the development of their family or their children. So on. 
Now, you're absolutely right. The world is a traumatizing place these days, more and more maybe, or more and more we're aware of how often it's been traumatizing. We know there are whole populations in this country and abroad where trauma was the rule. The inner city uh, black population has been hugely at risk because of poverty, because of uh, the history of slavery, uh, which through intergenerational transmission of trauma has brought the trauma right through to them, uh, all of this and other populations too. Immigrant populations, um, immigration just being an, an at-risk issue. I, I mean, of course we rely on immigrants and um, I, I think you and I, certainly I am descended from immigrants, of course, <laughs> of course. Of course I am. My wife is an immigrant from Scotland. Uh, well, there are all these factors that put people at risk in our country, race and poverty uh, and uh, being targeted uh, in various ways, as well as the ordinary things life deals, illness, um, going to war. Uh, anybody who goes to war is at risk for huge trauma and their children are gonna be at risk for that being passed on to them. Um, and this affects our families. Plus the family structure has changed radically in the last 50 years, 100 years. Um, so we don't expect that every family has two parents who've been together since they were in their 20s. Uh, we know that there are single parent families, there are blended families, divorced families, um, adoptive, families, these, these families all have different challenges and, and are more prone to uh, trauma that just can happen to them. Uh, so, uh, so I think we have, a, that's one of the things that's new. Uh, we, we, I, I think we all know, you probably know that Freud rejected the trauma theory of neurosis early in his theorizing. He didn't really reject it, but he stopped being interested in it. Uh, having posited that sexual trauma was at the root of all neurosis. He gave that up and it was right to give it up because it's not at the root of all neurosis. Uh, when there is sexual trauma or physical trauma to children, that is very, very important and, and determinative of what people suffer from. But what he discovered by giving it up was that we could do terrible things to ourselves in our minds with, with the vicissitudes of of fantasy life. Um, now it turns out more of that is influenced by the family we grow up in than he thought theoretically. His clinical case studies are full of all the data that I need to understand the families of the patients he was using as his analytic case studies. Um, the, the case of Dora, which is um, uh, one of the early case studies of uh, hysterical personality. He's got all the family data, but he didn't use it theoretically, but it's all there. So we can see what he actually was doing clinically was fully responsive to these things. Well, almost fully. There were some things he didn't know. He thought, uh, I don't know if you know the Dora story, but he thought that a young girl of 14 should really be flattered that an older man wanted to get sexual with her and that, uh, that she shouldn't be disgusted. She should be flattered and so on. Well, it's not true. <laughs> it's, a, it's a trauma uh, and he didn't understand that but um but he got a lot right about that and really clinically he was better than i think he was theoretically and there's there's a lot of misconceptions about what a family should do and the roles and the way people should be educated children should be educated and when i think of like behaviorism of the idea is like yeah give a handshake to your son don't hug them and uh, and uh, i think it's 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 nonsense and it's it creates trauma and this is what i would say is unnecessary trauma because you 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 are hurting somebody who loves you and all they need is your love your respect your attention and uh, a lot of family, families are not doing it. And it's, it's, it's a very simple thing. And it's across all um, uh, nations, cultures, races. It's very simple, but a lot of people are resistant to that. And they have the, all these false notions about what a family should be and children being independent. That means you don't have to deal with them. You don't talk to them. They have to figure it out for themselves. 
all these like misconceptions that we have. That's one thing I want to mention, but it's also another thing that you were, as you were speaking. It's something that's been, um, I've been thinking about a lot uh, over the past few years, especially even before COVID actually, that we go to the doctor when we're sick. We go to the psychologist or a psychotherapist or psychoanalyst when something is not working well. And it's like usually something severe, like you were saying, but I think everybody would benefit from it. This should be something it's like just enhancing your life. There's so many people and myself included who I think suffer from mild depression. It's still not helping me to love life and to live life to the fullest but I would not, it's not as extreme that I needed to go and see a specialist, but I was just getting by. And so I think we need to open this up. And this is not something that only if you're suffering, you go there, but if you're not having a lot of fun in your life, if you're not enjoying your life, if you're not living it to the maximum, then go see them. Because if, if I look back when I was a teen, I wish I had talked to a psychoanalyst because my love life back then would have been so much better. If I could just travel back in time with my knowledge today, I would just say to myself, my teen version, go see an analyst and, and you'll be successful with the girls. Yeah, I can't promise that. <laughs> uh, but, um, well, I, 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 I partly agree with you. Partly, I think it's, it's too much, of course. We're not going to provide this kind of intensive mental health service for just the sort of people who are unhappy from time to time. But I think there are a lot of people who really could use the help. I completely agree with you. I think if you're not happy, that is actually, and I don't mean giggling all the time, but if really life is, is, is a real struggle for you. Uh, of course, if you're hungry and poor, that's, that's the first thing. But I think there are plenty of people who, it's not, the, it's not those basic provisions. They just are, are unhappy too much of the time and they should talk. They should, clearly should talk to somebody. Um, I think there are other things in terms of applied analysis that should be more in the drinking water. I think these healthy principles that you're talking about. I think really um, a, a kind of public education process about, all right, what is a family for? What, what can you do to help your children thrive? And I think families are really basic across the world are for two things. They're to help each person, each individual in the family develop at each stage of life from infancy through old age. The family is the container for their healthy development. And it should provide the people in the family with the needs that we all have for intimate relationships. I mean, those two large categories. Um, it should help everybody function in the optimal way, developmentally and and it, being able to work if work is what's an issue. Um, now that's a very broad definition. So the specifics in any culture are going to differ. I, I read a book. Uh, Simon Baron Cohen wrote a book, and uh, where he talked about the importance of the first five years of a child's life. And of course, well, that's a huge issue with with Freud too. But he said if we can give our child the security, emotional security, the safety, the confidence in those first five years. It's like giving them gold. It's like you are making sure that the future will be prosperous. It just really the first five years, if we focus our attention on them, it's gonna help them in so many ways. Then, then we see parents who let them cry, who don't attend their children, who, who don't, who send them to preschool. And I understand the reasons there, but I'm thinking this well, is not helping them in many ways. Let me engage with you a little bit about this. I agree that the first five years are the foundation for everything that follows. You just can't quit then. You still gotta of keep- Of course going. not, of course not, yeah. <laughs> um, but but I, I, I think you were talking about love and don't let them cry and so on. Look, there are two components, two basic components to parenting and relating. And one is to invite the love and to offer the love. That's, that's one crucial, over overarching need. At the same time, parents need to set limits. So I also see parents who won't let their child cry himself to sleep. And the, as a result, the child never learns how to go to sleep. Uh, you've got to be able to let your child cry in an ordinary way. Uh, the child said, but I really want, I want you to hold me and not ever put me down. 
No, <laughs> it's not a good idea either. Uh, I'm using that as a kind of silly exaggeration, but, but setting limits is an equal part of parenting in a loving but firm way. And I see lots of families where the, where the parents are so anxious that the child will feel rejected that they can never say, you have to go to bed now. Or they can't say, I'm not giving you a lollipop, a lollipop 10 minutes before dinner. We're not doing that. Um, to teach the child to be more self-reliant. I don't mean just raising themselves uh, without parental support, but self-reliant also. Uh, that to be able, for instance, for a child to be alone in the presence of a loving parent, but to be alone and read a book, play, play with toys. A child should be able to play alone as one option, uh, but not yeah, have to always be alone. I, I completely agree with you. And that's definitely true. It's like, uh, yes, and as, uh, as a father myself and as an instructor, I know it's like you have to give freedom, but you also have set limits and you have expectations that they have to fulfill. But the, the environment, though, is uh, with my son. I have a, a teen son. He's 13. The environment has always been open. And I express your views and I will accept them. I will respect them. I might not agree with them in many ways, but you're open to express them. And so that has created a, an environment that now I kind of regret at some points where he's, he's criticizing me openly without fear and most of the time is actually correct <laughs> and yeah. so and that moves us away from the also authoritarian parents to to parents I think that should be more flexible about it we work as a team of course we're in charge we're not the same, we're not equal, but at the same time, we have to give them space and, and freedom to, to express themselves, to develop themselves, to find their own identity and not keep pushing them in certain preset directions that we have or our own wishes that we project onto them. And I see a lot of parents who are actually doing that. And I feel sorry for the kids because I, I say, I wish you were my kid because I, that would not happen in our home. And so I, I'd like more people to be aware of that. And that a lot of it comes in my view from, from trauma that they had from their parents and you get into that cycle, but we have to break that cycle. We have to stop it at some point. And it is our responsibility to do so each person. And it's not something I think people also victimize themselves. And I think we have to really move, uh, uh, move on and find another way of doing things because it doesn't give you an excuse to continue the same. This has always been like this. And I say, well, now is your chance to become a pioneer and to do something differently. Well, look, I, I, I agree with you. I wanna add in though, mm -hmm. that there really are a lot of different styles that can result in healthy sure. development. I agree. And some people are more authoritarian, but, but I'm not talking about being brutally authoritarian. They just, they're saying, you know, nope, this is the way we do it in our family. And those kids can turn out just fine. And they'll be a little more authoritarian than some other kids, or maybe they'll rebel and they won't be. But, but I don't want to close the door on people who just don't do it the way I think. Uh, that uh, I see a lot of people who are pretty good at the way they do it, for instance, um, all those cultures that have done arranged marriages. Um, you know, I, it's not a bad system. <laughs> I it depends, mean, but yes, I agree with you. It depends, it depends. again. Yeah. I, think, I think older parents thinking about what's going to make a happy couple have a lot more life experience than people who are 20 years old thinking they know everything and that, that, that romance will last forever. Um, uh, I, I mean, in in... This country, that's what that's our system. Uh, and we've got experience with it now for maybe 100 years, but, uh, or maybe 200. But uh, it's not an unmitigated good. Uh, uh, and I think that uh, we can accept that there are different systems for promoting development and then really try to think inside the system. Yes. I, I think one of the issues that we, we think in binary ways and we always think like individualism or collectivism and that's it, you pick one. But I, I like both. 
and I like somewhat the middle ground. And it's like sometimes, yes, I, I think individualism is more important. But we also see during COVID now, we do have to hang in there together. We do have to stick together. We have to help each other out. And it's not about like one person's rights that could override the rights of others. We have to find a balance there. And people are quite stuck, it's one or the other. And I, I, well, I look, I see this, I see this in the work in China. China is a um, and I don't mean in a communist sense. It's a collectivist society. Mm -hmm. It's always been that the, the morality is built on loyalty to the family and the group. That's always been true for 2,500 years in a, in a good way. And they have, in a way, a more selfless idea of what a person should be. They're moving away from that to a more individualistic society, more like ours. It's not exactly the same. But really, I felt I feel I've learned a lot by being immersed in that ethic, which is so different from the American ethic of, you know, you have to be an individual who has to take care of himself. And it's nice if you relate to your family, but you're, you're, you're on your own, sort of. But then, then the Asian cultures have this, this idea as your parents basically decide for you. It's not just peer, uh, arranged marriages. It's also for your future, your career, and so on. And that's where I think, no, that is where I stick well, to individualism. I, I'd say there, if the parents really have their child's well-being in mind, it's not all bad. I'm not, I'm not, I, I'm not that's not the world I live in. Mm -hmm. Of course, that system is collapsing mm -hmm. anyway. Uh, so uh, to the regret of some of the older parents who feel, wait, I did what my parents said. Why, why isn't my child doing what I say? Well, it's because the world has changed uh, and the Chinese world has changed too. I'm not talking about the politics, just the, the rapid evolution into a more a more individualistic society than they're used to it's a problem for them because they don't actually quite know yet how to live that way uh it's going to take them some time we you know we've had time uh, uh in the west too i mean parents used to make a, a lot of decisions for young people not much anymore uh what role, just to kind of come back to our first discussion, what role does technology play in all of this and in these changes in the changes in terms of family structure and kind of this, this global community that we talked about? Um, how important is technology for that in all its forms and methods? Um, well, we're talking about the, really the, the cultural effects of mm -hmm. the technology mm -hmm. rather than just the practical effects. Exactly. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think the obvious thing is that people are exposed to world, a world influence every day, even in countries that try to restrict that. But certainly in, in Europe and, and the Americas, people are openly influenced by so much that they're flooded. And it's hard for them. I think it's hard for people to hang on to a core that helps them be organized, whatever that is. I mean, the core of their family values or the, their religious values or their kind of national values, it's harder to do that because they're so buffeted. Um, then, of course, the, in, these other, in these countries with authoritarian governments that are <clears throat> trying to control the information, um, I think people, people are sensing a kind of constriction and that the technology is kind of a, it's a seduction. They, they can see it would offer more, but they can also see the government trying to limit it uh, and uh, I think then it becomes part of this traumatizing picture. Uh, uh, so, uh, and of course, it's a mixed bag. I mean, it's opened up the world in all the ways you and I have been talking about. It, it also has opened up the opportunities for trauma. If you just take, for instance, the way kids are traumatized uh, through the apps that they're on and they get bullied so much more easily and thoroughly than they used to. Or somebody in, you know, in a state a thousand miles away can reach out and traumatize a kid who lives nearby. All, all of that is, is also there. So I think it's really, it, I think it's harder to find what, and I don't mean this in a moralistic sense, but a moral center uh, for, in, for kids growing up, uh, that they're, <clears throat> they're open to so many influences that are um, a quantum leap more than used to be. One experience that has been equalizing in terms of trauma and suffering has been COVID. Because when, when we talk about it, everybody 
no matter where you are, can relate to it in some ways. And uh, some even more than others because of the experiences they've had and uh, painful experiences they've had and the losses and so on. But if, if we think about it, and I, again, I like to see the positive things, of, uh, the positive side of things, is we a lot of us don't haven't experienced famine or war or anything, but this is one thing that can unite us. And in terms of trauma and suffering, and we can empathize with others if again we choose to do so. And that is um, a benefit that has come from this situation. That it's it's kind of brought us closer globally. And so and the trying to solve this issue together, like before I used to think the only like issue when humanity comes together would be when aliens try to attack us, then we get together and try to fight against them. But now it's no, it's 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 a different kind of issue. It's a pandemic. Yeah. Well, I, I think you're right that it has been an equalizer in some ways, although people people with an, an adequate means have done okay. Yeah. And, and the children in poverty has really taken hits over and over again. Um, but I think it, it's true, aside from the polarization, which has been so difficult, traumatizing to us as a country, um, that we are in it together worldwide. We're in it together and we can have sympathy. And I certainly experienced this um, in the beginning, right in the beginning that uh, my Chinese colleagues and friends reached out to us. So even though it started there, they got on top of it faster. And they were sending masks and <laughs> telling us their experience and really being supportive to us. It was quite, quite marvelous. Uh, uh, but, it's, but it's a mixed bag. Uh, yes. Yeah. That's all. Uh, yeah. So, um, well deserved. Congrats again to to your prize at the Sigourney Award. So, which is an award here recognizing uh, your contribution and your and your, your your partner's contribution to to psychoanalysis and for the benefit of uh, of humankind. And I read. Uh, do, would you consider yourself a physician psychoanalysis? Would yes. be a yes. term, and I, I love that because for me, like interdisciplinary studies and uh, bringing things together, uniting things, and adding psychoanalysis to to areas that we hadn't previously, uh, I find that fascinating. And um, thing, you know, one thing I didn't mention, I should, mm -hmm. I should always mention, is I've been part of a project um, for our institute to give away psychoanalytic and psychotherapy books worldwide, free. Wonderful. Uh, Jill and I have been editors for this thing that our old publisher, Jason Aronson, started and has funded. And we've given away more than 2 million downloaded books in over 200 countries and territories, uh, free. Uh, and, uh, and people write and say, God, thank you. I could never afford these books uh, in India and Pakistan and worldwide. Um, so I, th I think this kind of capacity is is something that's now available to us that really can spread not just the word, but the whole ethic of trying to, the world being better if we can understand ourselves. And thank you for contributing to that. Thank you so much for being on Arash's World. It's been a great pleasure talking to you. Thanks, Arash. It's been fun for me. Thank All right. Bye-bye.